Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. I want to encourage you to turn in a Bible, your Bible or one in the pews, to Isaiah chapter 6. The Bible is a, is a, is a whole library of books. The book we're going to be reading from this morning is an ancient prophecy before the time of Jesus, Isaiah chapter 6. And if you uh, don't know your way around the Bible very well, that's page 571 in your pew Bibles. We're going to read about a king named Uzziah and an event that happened in the year that he died. The reign of King Uzziah, 800 years before Jesus Christ, remains a significant reference point in world history. Uzziah is important in Jewish uh, political history because his 52 years on the throne was the second longest reign of all the kings of Israel and Judah. Uh, his reign is significant in Jewish religious history because Uzziah was struck with leprosy for entering God's temple and for forcibly attempting to perform as a king duties that God had reserved only for the priests. His life was a symbol of the kind of care that needs to be taken in worshiping God. A reminder that we don't get to make it up as we go along as Christians. Uzziah's reign was also marked by a horrible moment in natural history. The greatest environmental disaster in the Middle East in a 500 year period. A, a deadly earthquake which archaeologists estimate to have been about an 8.0 on the Richter scale. More than one ancient reference calls it the earthquake during the days of King Uzziah. The king's reign is also significant in terms of military history for his army corps of engineers. Appears to have been the first to have designed catapults and machines for, for shooting large arrows. His reign is even significant in sporting history. For it was during his reign that the first Greek Olympics were held. But ironically, Uzziah's continuing uh, a brand recognition has nothing to do with any of these events or the fame of his successes or failures. The name of the great King Uzziah is best known because of a famous line in the prophet Isaiah. Let's read this line from Isaiah 6 and a few verses following. I'll be meditating with you this morning on verses 1 to 7 and then just reflecting briefly on the rest of the chapter. So let's read the, the whole of this chapter now. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, 
Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the people of this make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it's felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray together. Lord, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your holy word. There is no book like this book. And so we ask that you would use the words of scripture by your Holy Spirit to impact our lives in a way that would bring you the most honor and would do us the most good. We pray, Father, that you would help us. We're often distracted. Uh, we're often weary. And so we pray that you would give us the ears to, believe, to hear your word and, and hearts to believe your word and wills eager to respond to your word. Again, we pray that you would do this by your Holy Spirit. And we ask, Father, that even in these petitions, that you'd still hear our praises, for it is only to you that we come and in you that we trust. And we ask these things for our sakes so that we would be built up and encouraged. And for Jesus' sake, so that he would be honored in you and him. Amen. Well, in the spring of 1603, a professor at the University of Cambridge was preparing to lead a congregation in prayer at the university church, which was called Great St. Mary's. And just before he was to go to prayer, someone slipped him a note. He read it, and a few moments later, the congregation was in tears. Because he prayed for the monarch of England, and he didn't mention anyone by name. Queen Elizabeth had reigned for 45 years. Actually, she had not been very friendly to Thomas Gattaker's type. She didn't like Puritans very much. She wasn't so interested in their concerns about worship. She had declared herself to be the supreme governor of the church. Uh, personally, she preferred to be titled the supreme head. And she declared that if God didn't forbid anything in worship, then she had the right to command it of the people. But still, her passing was mourned by the English nation. She had brought political stability to the nation. Uh, and the passing of a monarch always marks a time of uncertainty. Well, Uzziah had reigned even longer. Those most devoted to serving God in his day had growing concerns about his leadership, not least when it came to worship. But the king had brought them political stability. He enlarged national borders. He had forced other nations to pay tribute. And he had kept the messiness of war far away from the heartland of Judah. But some things change. Queens die. 
kings die. Even the greatest men and women go. They come and they go. We are all called to give an account of our lives. Uzziah needed to give an account to the Lord for the way in which he had made himself autonomous, for the way in which he had made himself a law to his own right under God. And so there came a day when God called him to hear his sentence. As of course, there will come a day when each one of us will be called before God to hear ours. It was perhaps in part to comfort Isaiah during this time of national uncertainty that God chose to remind the prophet that while some things change, other things don't. And the thing that Isaiah is reminded of here is that God is on his throne. That's what never changes. In the year that King Uzziah went to lay in his grave, the prophet Isaiah was given a vision of the Lord sitting on his throne. How can we begin to understand the idea of a vision of God? Some, some kind of seeing of God. Because it does seem that God was willing to reveal himself in a form that Isaiah could grasp. Uh, one of the great Protestant reformers named John Calvin puts it like this. There was exhibited to Isaiah such a form as enabled him, according to his capacity, to perceive the inconceivable majesty of God. A biblical scholar named Edward Young says something similar. No physical eye can see him. It's not the essence of God that Isaiah sees, for inasmuch God is spiritual and invisible... That essence cannot be seen by the physical eye of the creature. At the same time, it's a true seeing, a manifestation or, or a display of the glory of God in human form adapted to the capabilities of the finite creature, which the prophet beheld. This is one of a number of glimpses of God, you could say, that we find in the Bible. And each one of these visions, you'll notice, is vague about the details and clear about the effects. Each one of them says almost nothing about the form that's seen and focuses instead on the signs of greatness and glory that attach themselves to the presence of God. Each one of these glimpses is a foretaste, by the way, of what every believer will one day enjoy. Because didn't Jesus say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The form of God that Isaiah saw, it seems, was God in the form of his son. Why do I say that? Well, because the Apostle John, centuries later, and in the 12th chapter of his gospel, says that Isaiah was seeing the Lord on his throne. Centuries before Jesus' birth and death and resurrection and ascension. Now, according to the Bible, only very few have ever seen such a sight. And only then for a specific reason. Isaiah saw the Lord only because the Lord knew that Isaiah needed to know that some things change and other things don't. While empires rise and fall, the Lord always remains on his throne. 
Now Isaiah could hardly have missed the, the contrast between the kings of this world and the king of all kings. But the mere fact of the continued kingship and reign of God appears to have been overwhelmed by the experience of the presence of God. I, Isaiah mentions the throne of God, high, exalted, probably heavenly. Isaiah sees, seems to be uh, ushered in his mind's eye into the very presence of God. He tells us about the train of God, the, the royal robe so magnificent that it spills around the throne and, and fills the temple. He cannot help but see the angels of God, the fiery seraphim, the closest attendants to God. And from what little that I can tell, an order of angel high above that of the cherubim. Isaiah notices the actions of these heavenly servants who in spite of the splendor of their power and the glory of their appearance, fall so far short of the glory of God that they both try to cover themselves from being seen and cover their eyes from seeing God. The prophet notices the effects of the angel's words. For as they speak to each other, the holy temple rocks on its foundations and smoke billows through the building. But most of all, what does he highlight? Most of all, Isaiah highlights the song of the angels. For the song of the angels explains everything else. For it's because of the holiness of the Lord of hosts or the Lord of armies that his throne is exalted, that his throne, that his robe is unearthly, that his angels adore him, that the temple and indeed the whole earth is filled with his glory. There are few descriptions in the Bible of the throne room of God. There's one here in Isaiah, and we read one earlier that we see in Revelation chapter 4. And these descriptions are carefully calculated to make an impression. And the impression is that of otherworldly power of untold greatness. For even the servants of God leave heaven shaking. But it's surely no accident. And even more important, that in these two visits that readers of the Bible are permitted to take to heaven to the throne room of God, that in each case, the angels are saying the same thing about God. They are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. Now, what does it mean that the holiness of God is announced again and again? Well, perhaps we can learn from this repetition something about the intensity of God's holiness. If you've had the privilege of studying Hebrew, and it doesn't always feel like a privilege at the time, you'll know that in the Hebrew language, superlatives or, or extremes or perfections are expressed by doubling up a word. So, so the most uh, pure gold in Hebrew is called gold gold. Uh, the most horrible fit of rage is called anger anger. Well, what might it mean that here holiness is tripled rather than doubled? Maybe the point is that God's holiness is somehow beyond the heights of holiness. He's, he's holy, more holy, and then somehow even more holy yet. Maybe that's what's meant by the tripling of this word. 
Well, perhaps we are to learn from this repetition that the angels never cease to praise God for His holiness. One seraphim calls out to another in antiphonal praise. The one responds. And, and they never tire in their amazement at God's holiness. It just goes on and on. Well, certainly we're to learn from this repeated praise of the holiness of God something about His very nature. His holiness must deserve praise even beyond His other perfections. I mean, the angels are not shouting, powerful, powerful, powerful. They're not calling out to each other, eternal, eternal, eternal. Even though God's power and eternity are beyond all of our comprehension. No, they're calling out to each other, holy, holy, holy. There's a reason why the angels who dwell most closely to God focus on His holiness. It's a curious thing that the two greatest theologians of the medieval period... Peter Lombard and Thomas Aquinas give almost no attention to the holiness of God. The theologians of heaven don't make that kind of mistake. They sing His holiness to the highest. And they know why. But what is this holiness? Well, I suppose in the, in the first place that we need to see that to be holy is to be separated. Uh, to, to be set apart. A holy person or place or thing is set apart from that which is common. For example, a priest or a temple or an altar is called holy because it's set apart from all other legitimate callings or buildings or objects. And saying that God is holy, we're saying that He's in a class to Himself. He's separated. He's set apart. God, the Creator, is distinct from anything else that could be or is or will be. Holiness for God expresses who He is. To be holy for God is not to just say something about what He will do, but about who He is. It's not just an action of God. It strikes at His essence. In fact, nothing in this world can be holy unless it has some kind of connection to God who's the fountain of all holiness. Does that make sense? So, so a priest will not be holy if he is not God's priest. A temple is not holy unless it symbolizes God's presence. For that matter, we won't ever be holy. We cannot be holy without the influence and impact of God's Holy Spirit on our lives. There's no holiness apart from God. So what's holiness? To be holy is to be separated, to be set apart, to be like God. In the second place, holiness must also include moral purity. God in His holiness is perfect. He's unpolluted. It's a, it's a synonym for His uprightness and integrity. His holiness is the thing that makes all of God's other virtues beautiful or right or perfect. God's love would not be a pure love if it wasn't a holy love. His being, wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and truth are shaped they're directed by His holiness. The glory of God is seen in the revelation of His character, in the revelation of His perfections. And what I'm saying is that God's holiness is behind every one of those perfections. God's virtues without holiness would be like a muscle without strength, or fire without heat, or a sunset without beauty. 
or a laugh without humor. God's holiness informs all that He is. He's holy in His love, in His kindness, in His grace, in His anger. And without holiness, all that He is and does would be less. If it were possible, He would be imperfect, impure, tarnished. The Puritan theologian who thought most about the doctrine of God and the character of God, a man named Stephen Charnock, once went so far as to say about God that if we conceive Him destitute of this excellent perfection, he's talking about holiness, and imagine Him possessed with the least bit of evil, we make God but an infinite monster. God is holy. And that means He's set apart. God is holy. That means He is morally pure. God is holy. And... And in saying this, we're not going too far to say that God is holiness itself. Now, we can say that safely because holiness so captures the perfection of God that the word holy is sometimes used as a substitute for everything that God is. When a child gets dressed up for a school picture, I think most children get dressed up for school pictures, a parent hopes that they'll take time to say, uh, wash their face and comb their hair. Tough parents may even require that kind of grooming. And they do that because we expect that the, even the most incompetent school photographer is going to capture an image of our child's face. I doubt that there is a mother who would be content with a wallet-sized photo of their child's stomach. It's not that stomachs are unimportant. I'm not even sure that a child can be a child without a stomach. But, but they want a picture of the face because in someone's face, we, we somehow get an external summary of the whole. The face captures something about that whole person in a way that their stomach or feet or lower back does not. The holiness of God is, is something like that. Nothing else so captures the character of God as does His holiness. It's, it's not that His righteousness or His power or His wisdom or anything else is unimportant to the character of God. God would not be God without the full range of His beauties and perfections. It, and yet it's, it's just that no one thing can stand for the whole of who God is as does His holiness. Holiness in that very limited sense is, is like the face of God. Now I say this not merely because the angels sing His holiness like no other attribute of God. And I, I say this not only because there's no uh, aspect of God's character mentioned more in the Bible than His holiness, although that's true too. I, I say this about holiness not merely because even Christian heretics acknowledge that God is holy. That even the worst painters of God's character, the worst photographers, if you will, have still tried to capture something of God's perfection. I say this because this is how God speaks about Himself. You may know that in emphasizing His oaths, in adding punch to His promises, that God sometimes swears by His own name in the Bible. 
Because there's no one greater to swear by. That's exactly what he did when he was making a promise to Abraham. We're reminded of that in Hebrews chapter 6. But have you ever noticed in reading the Bible that God sometimes doesn't really swear by his own name? Sometimes God swears by his own holiness. If you're reading Psalm 89 this morning before coming to church, you'd see that there. Or Amos chapter 4. That's where God says, I have sworn by my own holiness. As one writer put it, God pawns the whole of his reputation on his holiness. He stakes every word that he makes on the holiness of his character. For to be holy is not just to be right and to know what's right, but also to be guaranteed to do what is right. It does say something fundamentally about God's character. It also lets us predict God's actions in the sense that we know he will keep his own word. Well, if holiness so perfectly captures the character of God, then to deny it, to undermine it, must be one of the worst insults against God. Stephen Charnock once claimed that he that says God's not holy speaks much worse than he who says there's no God at all. Charnock was here reflecting on the saying of a famous philosopher and historian named Plutarch. Plutarch uh, once stated that he'd be far less insulted by someone who says there is no Plutarch than by someone who admits Plutarch's existence but then maligns his character. And Charnock reasoned that this must be even more true about God. He says it is less injury to him to deny his being than to deny the purity of it. Now I'm not quite sure I can say with Charnock what he says with equal confidence, but he is making a good point in the strongest of terms. The holiness of God is inseparable from God himself. And when we in any way diminish the holiness of God, we are moving away from a true understanding of God. That's why in verse 5, by the way, Isaiah, in the presence of God, is clearly overwhelmed by the holiness of God. You can see it if you, if you look at it now. The, the prophet says this personally and, and negatively and intensely. What he says is very personal. Look, woe is me. I am lost. I, I, in the midst of all the people, I. You see, there's no hiding in the presence of God. Anyone rushed into the presence of a holy God as Isaiah was in this vision and as we all will be on the day of our death will be very conscious not only of who God is but of who we are. Here in this vision all the attention is on God and yet in God's presence Isaiah feels the dizziness of the stage and the heat of the spotlights. What he says is also very negative. Who knows what the prophet thought about himself and his prophesying skills uh, before Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, he might have thought he was in the upper echelons of the prophets. Uh, maybe he didn't have that kind of self-confidence. But here he is, placed in the presence of God, a holy God. And he can't help but start to use words like woe and lost. It's not that God was saying anything about him, you see. The point is, as you can see by looking at the end of verse 5. The point is not that God was seeing Isaiah for who he was. The point is that Isaiah was suddenly seeing God for who God is. His eyes saw the king, the Lord of armies. And in seeing God, 
in seeing God. Isaiah suddenly had a new and negative assessment about himself. He calls himself unclean. He sees everyone else around him as unclean. And for some reason, he's especially conscious of his words. Have you ever been around someone who really impressed you? Someone you look up to and, and, and suddenly found yourself very conscious about your words? Your, your words didn't really feel good enough all of a sudden? Your ordinary speech doesn't seem right? Usually that feeling isn't justified once we get to know the great one. Uh, we find out they're ordinary people just like ourselves and we can become comfortable with them. We can learn to relax. But it's not like that in the presence of God. Isaiah was not exaggerating about himself. He, he wasn't, he wasn't over, overdoing this dynamic, this sense of inadequacy. No, God makes us conscious of who we are. And He makes us conscious of our words. What the prophet says is also intense. This vision has a huge impact on Isaiah. The torrent of his words summarized in verse 5 is nothing short of anguished. The 4th century preacher, John Chrysostom, was preaching on this passage. And he asked the people in front of him, Do you perceive with what dread, with what awe, they pronounce that name, speaking about the angels, while glorifying and praising him, speaking about God? But you and your prayers, your supplications, call upon Him with much listlessness, carelessness. When it would become you to be full of awe, to be watchful, to be sober. Now the kind of question and observation that Chrysostom thought was fair for his congregation, and which I don't know is whether it's fair for this one, was certainly not fair for Isaiah. Isaiah was not insufficiently in awe of God when he was before him. No, he, he was in dread of God. He was astonished by God. He's undone by this vision, by his lostness, by his uncleanness in the presence of a holy God. Isaiah seems to have understood this, that if God is so holy, then he's the opposite of all that's unholy. And while it's easy enough to minimize this fact before a man in a pulpit, it's impossible to minimize that fact before God on his throne. But here's what's so wonderful. What is so wonderful is that in verses 6 and 7, the immediate response of God through His angel is one of mercy. Now I confess that I'm just a professor of church history. And so the exact significance of the burning coal is a little bit, I, I, I can't pin it down. And uh, Jewish and Christian commentators have seem to have found no end of explanation as to why a burning coal from the altar is applied to the prophet's mouth. But the basic idea, like a, like a parable with a main point, is clear enough to everybody. It's clear enough to me and I hope to you. Contact with the altar and what it symbolized is what Isaiah really needed. This unclean man needed to be in touch with something that can atone for sin. You see, an altar is a symbol of substitution. An altar is where the sacrifice of the innocent is made in place of the guilty. Now, in the Old Testament, animals were put on the altar. 
animals were used for sacrifices, in part because animals can't be guilty of sin, and in part because no mere human being could ever bear the cost of sin. In this heavenly vision, the altar and the coal are symbolic of the healing, forgiving grace of God, grace that only comes through a sacrifice, through a substitute. Now, we know that because the symbol's clear enough. We also know that because the angels explain this, their actions. I think it was Edward Young who, who commented that just like the water of baptism or the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper are given meaning by words of explanation, so here the symbolic action is given meaning by the angel's explanation. And the angel declares that Isaiah has been touched by this symbol of sacrifice, and so his guilt is taken away. His sin is atoned for. Now, what is so significant in this response of God, and almost so obvious that I can miss it, and maybe you too, is that Isaiah, in his sinfulness, is accepted rather than rejected. He's kept in the presence of God rather than being banished from the presence of God. Because he stood before a holy God, he couldn't be accepted as he was. Something needed to be done about it. For the holiness of God informs the justice of God and thankfully the grace of God. Something needed to be done about Isaiah's problem. For the holiness of God requires that nothing unholy can remain in his presence. And God's the one who did something about it. Isaiah couldn't, God could, and God did. Isaiah, like every one of us, needed an altar. He needed atonement. Something needed to be done about his sin, and his sin needed to be forgiven because, or before rather, he could remain in the presence of God. Something is done. Isaiah needed some atoning work done, forgiving mercy in the presence of God. He needed this for the same reason that we all do, because we're all unholy. None of us can stand before God as we are. He also needed this because he was called to be a preacher of God, required to give a set sermon. The sermon recorded in the rest of this chapter that we read a few minutes ago is one of judgment with just a hint of mercy. The substance of the sermon dictated to Isaiah in verses 8 to 13 declares that God is turning away from most of his people. It was a sad sermon predicting the exile of the Israelites because they refused to hear, refused to understand what God had been saying to them. The tree of the nation would be cut down. Only a stump would be left. Although one day a little sprig would come up from that stump, referring to the, the, to the restoration, to the forgiveness that God would offer to his people, the way he would bring them back into the land, and indeed do more than that the way which you would provide for them a savior. Well, I think it's no coincidence, and you can, you can judge this for yourselves, but I think it's no coincidence that just prior to the most quoted pronouncement of judgment in the whole Bible, that the holiness of God is trumpeted not once, but three times by the angels of heaven. For you see, the judgment of God is a consequence of the holiness of God. You see, we are not mere animals. We're people. We're made in God's image. 
And in spite of everything that we see around us, in spite of what we do ourselves and see in our own hearts, we do know the difference between right and wrong. We do carry guilt for our faults. And no mere animal, no coal from a heavenly altar could take away sin, really. These were just symbols. A true substitute. A real sacrifice was needed. One whose holiness could be substituted for our unholiness, our lostness, our uncleanness. There needed to be some true basis for forgiveness and for atonement. And the astonishing story of the, Christian, of the Christian gospel, if you keep reading through the Bible, a story not too good to be true, is that the one whom Isaiah saw high and lifted up on his throne, the one before whom the angels call holy, 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 not only provided salvation in symbol, but in reality. The scriptures tell us that the one that Isaiah saw in this prophetic vision stepped off his throne and came for 33 years to an unholy world where he gave himself at the end as an atoning sacrifice, as a substitute of the holy for the unholy so that all who looked ahead to his coming or who look back at his finished work will be granted forgiveness for what he has done in spite of what we do. Perhaps it's Isaiah chapter 6 that explains why the angels of heaven have filled the skies with praises at Jesus' birth. For who but they who had known the glory of His holiness could, could not be moved by the extent of His humility for us. No wonder they announced with joy at the, uh, the day of His resurrection. For, for who better than they could understand the honor that Jesus truly deserves? But like Isaiah 6, the New Testament doesn't end there either, does it? For it tells us that Jesus, the Jesus who brought the salvation of God, will one day return and bring the judgment of God. We need to be saved by Jesus to be saved from Jesus. Then too we are told, by the way, that He will be accompanied by angels. Angels who know the holiness of God. Angels who have witnessed the, the holiness of God seen in our salvation and will then bring in the holiness of God seen in His judgment. Will you pray with me? That long before that time comes, long before the day that we are ushered into God's presence, that we will understand His holiness, our unholiness, and, and the holiness that can rescue us that is found in Jesus Christ alone. Will you, will you pray this with me for yourselves and for your friends and for your families? Let's pray now. Lord our God, we know of no one like you. No one can compare to you and your excellence, your perfection, your might, your power, your justice, your grace, your holiness. We pray, Father, that by your mighty spirit, 
that you would help us to see and to understand and to believe and to hold on to with all that we are and all that we have the message that we have heard from your word this morning. And we ask that you'd help us because we pray in the name of your Son, our Holy Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.